0: You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. I don't know. I thought that was a good song. God's faithfulness is amazing. It's astounding. Um... The text we're going to be in, we're going to be in John chapter 4. Uh, We're going to finish up chapter 4 and go through uh, verse 5, 18. for uh, For our church family, the last year has been really rough. We've had disease. We've had tragic deaths. Countless hours have been spent in the hospital rooms. And until this past year, I haven't spent much time really thinking about Jesus as our healer. It's not like I didn't believe that he could heal. It's not that I didn't feel the need or desire to pray for healing. It's just on a, sh- a shortcoming on my part. I just didn't really think about it that much. But in my life, I've never been faced with as much sickness as I have this past year. And in today's text, we're going to look at two individuals that experienced Jesus' miraculous healing. And they're going to respond in two completely different ways. But what I want you to notice is that it's not the healings that take center stage. It's Jesus. That Jesus takes center stage. In all situations, in all circumstances, whether good or bad, sickness or health, joy or sorrow, Jesus needs to take center stage in our lives. We were talking about in, in a Sunday school this morning, Romans chapter 5, the first few verses, verses 1 through 5. And that in our affliction and in our suffering, God doesn't leave us, but he shapes us. That in our affliction, it goes from our affliction to patience to endurance to proven character. And it's all because of the glory of God. That is his goal, is to be glorified. And he can be glorified in our sickness. And he can be glorified in our healing. And he can be glorified in any way that he wants to be glorified. And for the follower of Jesus, he is the glue that holds us together. Jesus is the glue that holds us together. That we can rely on his goodness. We can trust in his compassion. We can hope in his love and in his grace. Regardless of the trials regardless of the sufferings, regardless of the pain we face, we can say that God has never left us. Just like those lyrics, never once did we ever walk alone. Never once did he leave us on our own. Because He is a faithful God. He's faithful. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your faithfulness. That no matter what's happening in our lives, that you don't leave us. That you are faithful. You are loving. You are compassionate. In sickness, and in joy, and health, and all of the things that happen in our lives, Lord, you are faithful, and we're grateful for that, Lord. As we read through these these uh, accounts in John's Gospel this morning, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would illuminate the scriptures, or that we could have a response of faith in who you are, not simply what you can do. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 4, verse 43, uh, says this, after two days he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival. For they had also gone to the festival. So Jesus leaves Samaria. He spent some time in Samaria. John tells us he spent two days in Samaria. Right? He met with the woman at the well, and then after she became his first evangelist, he stays there, and he's teaching, and he's preaching. And then we get this interesting note from John chapter 4. Um 44, it says that Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own town. So he's leaving Samaria, and he's going back to his hometown in Galilee. What's going on here? Because what we see is that right after we read that he has no honor in his own town, Jesus goes into Galilee, and what? There's there's some fanfare, right? They, they welcome him with open arms. They're like, come on, Jesus, come on in. We see that he's welcomed, but why is he welcomed? He's welcomed because of what he can do. They had seen what he did in Samaria and so they want or in Jerusalem earlier so they want him to continue to do that. They had witnessed his signs, they had witnessed his wonders and they were excited to see what he was going to do in their town. They didn't care that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't care that Jesus was the king. They didn't care that Jesus was the creator of the universe. They wanted Jesus the magician. Right? They wanted Jesus the miracle worker. They wanted Jesus the healer, not Jesus the Lord. And if we're not careful, we can fall into that same trap where we want Jesus to do something for us, we don't want to worship Jesus as he is. Where we desire the gifts of God, but not the giver of those gifts. This Galilee and fanfare welcomed Jesus, but notice that they didn't believe in Jesus. They welcomed him, but they didn't believe him. And John here is directly contrasting their response of the Galileans with the response of the Samaritans. Remember in John chapter 4, verse 41, it says this about the Samaritans. Many more believed because of what he said. The Samaritans listened to Jesus and believed. The Galileans saw what Jesus could do, and they welcomed him. That's difference. They didn't believe. They didn't have faith. They didn't trust. To those in Galilee, Jesus' own people, the Jewish people, Jesus was just a sideshow to be witnessed and not the Lord to be worshiped. But the reception of him doesn't mean that he doesn't have compassion. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have love. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have grace. It doesn't mean that he cares less for those who are hurting, which we'll see in just, in just a second. He still does some miraculous things in Galilee. And yet they still don't honor him. They still don't worship him. Verse 46, it says this. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went with him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, since he was about to die. Jesus told him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, Come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him. Your son will live. The man believed what Jesus had said to him and departed. While he was still going down, his servants met him, saying that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time did he get better. Yesterday, about one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with this whole household. Now this was the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. Jesus returns to Cana, where he had turned water into wine. That's the first thing that John tells us. He's been here before. He's done a miracle here before. Right? And as he's there, this royal official comes to plead with Jesus about his son. Right? He, this man most likely served Herod, the governor of the region, and he was used to being in power. He was used to being in control. And now he's in a situation where he has no power, and he has no control. And he hears that there's this Jesus, this miracle worker, traveling around the area, and he can do miraculous things. So out of desperation and heartache, he travels some 22 miles from Capernaum to Galilee to ask Jesus to heal his son. I know, as a parent, that there's not much more heartbreak than watching a child suffer, right? There's no not much more heartbreak than watching a loved one suffer at all but when it's your child, it's something different. I know that for my parents when I was going through what I was going through with my brain, right? They were trying to figure out what was going on. They were all in a tizzy, right? They were absolute wrecks trying to figure out what was going on. And even when my kids just have a cold or the flu or a stomach bug, I hate to see them in that type of pain. And this man, this man sees his son dying. And he is hopeless. He is desperate for a miracle. He is pleading with Jesus, come here and do something. And in that desperation, he runs to Jesus and he begs him, come and see my son. He believes that Jesus can heal his son. He's heard that he's done miraculous things. But he doesn't understand that Jesus doesn't have to be there to heal him. He wants him to come and see his son because every other miracle worker or doctor in that area would have to be near the boy to help him, but not Jesus. He doesn't recognize who Jesus is, that he is the son of God who works all kinds of miracles, either near or far. But the father and the crowd, they're going to get some pushback from Jesus. Jesus is going to push back a little bit. Jesus is speaking to the father, but he's addressing everybody who's around him. And what does he say? He says, unless you people... Unless all of you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus sees that the only way that they will believe in him is if they see something amazing, if they see something spectacular, if they see something awe-inspiring. All the while, they're missing the most amazing, the most spectacular, and the most awe-inspiring God of the universe standing right before them. They're missing it. And these people are no different than a lot of people today. I know that you've heard, because I have, people say that if God would do this one thing, right? If God would move this mountain, then I would believe in Him. If God would heal me, I would believe in Him. If God would restore my relationship with this person, then I will believe believe in Him. Or if He works out any other miracle, I will believe. But here's where Jesus pushes back. He says, He knows that belief in him based on something miraculous is a shallow and hollow faith. Because faith built on a miracle means that if that miracle ceases, then you may cease to believe because your faith is built on shifting sand. This kind of view, this kind of thinking views God not as Lord and Savior of the universe, of the world, but as a mystical and magical genie here to serve your every whim. It's a very, very low view of God and a super elevated view of yourself. The crowd there in Galilee had already heard about and maybe even some of them witnessed the miracle of the water turned to wine in Cana. And it still wasn't enough. They wanted more. And in verse 45 it says, the Galileans even saw him in Jerusalem during the festival. They had seen the works that he did there and it still wasn't enough. They wanted more. They wanted to be wowed again. Jesus wasn't enough. They wanted more. However, Jesus is more concerned with saving their souls than he is with their physical needs. Jesus came to solve our greatest problem. He came to conquer sin and death. He came to pave a way for us to be in right relationship with the Father, he came to restore us. And oftentimes, all we can see and all we want is what Jesus can do for me. How can he make my life better? How can he end my current suffering? How can he serve me? How selfish can we be? How arrogant can we be? We, we make conditions. Jesus, if you give me blank, then I will believe in you. Give me that promotion, I'll believe in you. Give me a boyfriend, give me a girlfriend, I will believe in you. Heal my mom, heal my dad, my spouse, my friend, I will believe in you. Show me a sign and I will believe with you. Give me children, grandchildren, I will believe with you, believe in you. Heal me in my marriage and I will believe with you. Accomplish this impossible task and I will believe. And we're putting conditions on our faith. We're putting conditions on God. And then if Jesus doesn't show up in the way that we think he should, we don't believe. And if he does show up, we may believe for a time. But then what if he doesn't show up the next time? What if he doesn't do it the way we want him to do it the next time? Then we, we stop believing. We stop trusting him because our faith is built on something shallow and hollow. This is why the miracles of Jesus should not be the foundation of our faith. They can be a catalyst for faith, causing us to believe in Jesus. If the the miracle drives us to Jesus, that's a good thing. Miracles can enhance our faith, but they should not be a requirement for faith. The greatest miracle of all, guys, is that God put on flesh and came to dwell amongst his people. That he suffered and he died on our behalf. That he rose again, conquering sin and death. The greatest miracle is the gospel. That's the greatest miracle. If Jesus never does another thing for you in your life, he already performed the greatest miracle. And that should be enough. Now what I don't want you to hear me say is that Jesus doesn't care about our suffering, that he never heals, that he doesn't ever physically restore, that he isn't interested in our physical lives at all. Because that wouldn't be a right view of God at all. He does love us. Does Jesus have the power and authority to heal? Without a doubt. Does Jesus always heal everyone? No. Why is that the case? I don't know. Should we cry out to him to heal those that we love? Those who are hurting? Those who are sick? Absolutely. Absolutely. But even if he doesn't heal you, or he doesn't heal your family member, or he doesn't heal your friend, he still deserves worship. He still deserves your praise, because he is still the God of the universe who gave himself up for you. Now this father had just heard this rebuke from Jesus. All you want are signs and miracles. But what does he do? He says, Jesus, please come and heal my son that rebuke doesn't stop him he begs jesus to come and save his son he's looking at jesus as his only hope please jesus come and heal my son heal my boy come on jesus please and jesus simply responds by saying go your son will live and the man leaves and john tells us that he believed what jesus says but does he fully believe what he said we don't really know. Perhaps he believed because he had done all that he could do. Jesus wasn't going to leave. Jesus wasn't going to go visit his son. So he's like, okay, well, I trust you as much as I can. Perhaps after Jesus' rebuke, his final plea, Jesus' command to go, then that, that he has nothing else to do. I can't do anything else. I can't make Jesus come here. But the fullness of belief didn't happen until the confirmation that the son got well. On the way home, the man runs into his servants. Right, He's met by his servants, and they told him that his son was well. He wanted to know, when did this happen? When did this happen? And they said it happened at 1 o'clock. And he goes, that's when Jesus said that he would be well. That's when he said he would be well. And then what does it say? He believed. He and his household believed. And John leads us to believe that this was a saving faith that this guy fully trusted Jesus, that this man continues to believe in Jesus because he recognized who Jesus was. The miracle was not the foundation of this man's faith, but the catalyst for his faith. Yes, Jesus healed this man's son, but the greater miracle is that Jesus saved this man's life, that he revealed the truth of who he was to this man, and the man believed. Someone trusting in Jesus giving their life to Jesus is always the greatest miracle. Now this healing is followed by one that is drastically different. In verse 5 or chapter 5 verse 1 it says this. After this a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic which has 5 colonnades. Within these lay a large number of disabled, blind, lame and paralyzed One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. So there's a healing that happens in Jerusalem. Jesus leaves Galilee and makes his way to Jerusalem because there's a feast taking place. John doesn't tell us what feast this is, what celebration this is, because he doesn't feel like it's important for us to know. But Jesus makes his way to this area where many disabled people are. Right, A lot of people are just in this area where there's this large pool, and they believe that when this pool bubbles up, if they get into the pool first, then they will be healed of their ailment. It's a widely held folk belief. And Jesus singles out, he looks along the whole crowd, and he singles out this one man sitting by the edge of the pool. Why did he single out this man? What was it about this man that caused Jesus to go, that's the guy I want to heal? Especially when we read further, which we will in just a little bit, that this man doesn't seem to deserve this miracle. Right? If we're looking through it, through our own eyes, this guy does not deserve this miracle. But Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? And immediately this man starts complaining, right? He starts fussing. He starts whining about not being able to be placed in the pool when the waters get stirred up. He's been disabled for 38 years, right? He's had 38 years of disappointment, 38 years of frustration, 38 years of anger, resentment, and bitterness, watching all these people go into this fountain before him. Does he want to get healed? I'm sure he does. Does he believe that it's possible? No, he doesn't. There's no one here to help me. He's helpless. He's hopeless. He's depressed. But Jesus doesn't listen to his pity party, right? He doesn't talk about his pity party. He says, rather, he just says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Get up and walk. And at the word of Jesus, instantaneously, this man was healed. He regained all of his strength immediately. Imagine for just a moment All that had to take place for this man to walk again. Just for a second. I know people who have broken their leg, right? And they had their leg in a cast. And they had to go to rehab for a couple months to strengthen their leg back. This man had been, been disabled for 38 years. You've got to regain the strength, right? Because atrophy takes place. The muscles in the leg are not being used. So they have to be restrengthened. But after 38 years, he has no muscle in his leg. And all Jesus says is, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And he did so. He didn't wobble around like Bambi, right, getting out of his mama, right? But walking around like he hadn't missed a day in his life, strutting. I'm sure he was strutting, right? Oh, yeah, I get to walk now. But he didn't even thank Jesus. He just leaves. He just walks off, not saying one word. He was ungrateful. Didn't even recognize what had just taken place. He was so focused on the miracle that he missed the miracle worker, Why would Jesus heal this man knowing that he would be ungrateful? Knowing that he would eventually, we'll read in a minute, turn on him. Why wouldn't he, why would he, he healed somebody that would have believed in him instead? Why did Jesus waste this healing when he could have healed someone that would have recognized him for who he was? Here's a truth that may be hard for some of us to hear. Sometimes Jesus extends his grace and healing to those who will never believe his name. And why does he do this? Because he can. I don't have a better answer than that. Because he can. Because he wills it. Because it is going to bring him glory in some way. And because he knows that this healing is going to lead to accomplishing his mission. Here's a question that's really close to our own minds and hearts. Why does God help those who don't love him and seemingly be quiet towards those who do? We can look at someone far away, that they're far away from God, and we see their life seems to be blessed. They have all the money. They seemingly have no problems. They are living the good life while we are here suffering. If you go through the book of Psalms, you see that all over the place. Why are they prospering when I am suffering? But let me assure you of this. In your suffering, God hears you. He sees you. He loves you. And he is with you. And the trials and the suffering that you are facing are of no surprise to him. It's easy for us to get bogged down in the things of life. It's easy for us to miss the forest for the trees. But here's what happened happening: this healing of this man isn't a mistake. On Jesus' part, he wasn't surprised that the man wasn't going to worship him. As we'll see in a minute, this healing sets in motion the hatred of Jesus by the Jewish leaders. This healing begins the trail of the glory of God. Even when things look unfair and unjust to us, we have to trust that God knows what He is doing. Everything that He does is for His own glory. Everything that he does is to reveal the truth of who he is to those who will believe. So when we see hardships, when we face trials, when we suffer, we know that it is never wasted. God is using that to make his name glorified. Don't look at how other people are receiving blessings compared to you. Rather, look at how God has already blessed you and be excited that he sees fit to love you because of Jesus. Remember, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of satisfaction in Jesus. And now the story shifts because Jesus healed this man on a very special day to the Jewish people, the Sabbath day. And for that, the Jewish leaders, is a big deal. We'll read in the last part of verse 9 through 14. Now that day was the Sabbath And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath, the law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, the man who made me whole, who who made me well, told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you to pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. There's a violation that happens here, seemingly, on the Sabbath. The day that the that Jesus held this man was or healed this man was the Sabbath. Now for us this may not be as important of an issue, but this was the day that God had set aside for the Jewish people to worship God. To worship and obey. In Exodus chapter thirty one, God commands Moses to tell the people about the importance of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is actually long ago established in Genesis when God rested on the seventh day. But in Exodus 31, he tells Moses this, verses 12 through 14. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, so that you will know that I am the Lord who consecrates you. Observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Whoever profanes it must be put to death. If anyone does work on it, that person must be cut off from his people. See, God is interested in... and demands people keep the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath. They can't distract themselves from worship on the Sabbath, and God makes this law. But the rulers, especially the Pharisees at this time, think that God's law needs to be clarified a little bit. It's not enough for God just to tell them not to work. They need to make sure that people understand what that means. So what they do is they create 39 categories of work, And if you violate one of those 39 categories of work on the Sabbath, then you are cut off from the people. They believed that they were clarifying God's commands, but in actuality, all they were doing was adding to it. They were complicating it. If I said don't work on the Sabbath, you know what that means, right? Maybe. Maybe I need to come up with 39 categories of what work is, right? But one of those categories for work is that you couldn't move furniture. And this man was carrying his mat. He was moving furniture, right? It was just straw. So, hey, guys, if your wife ever asks you to move your couch on Sunday, tell her you can't do it, right? It's work. Um, I'm looking at you, Dwayne. <laughs> but he's, he's violating the law. So at this point, Jesus isn't in trouble with the Pharisees. He's not in trouble. It's this guy who's in trouble because he's the one violating the Sabbath. But what does he do? He says, no, it's this guy. It's this guy's fault that I'm moving. It's this guy's fault that I'm violating the Sabbath. It's not my fault. That guy told me to do it. And the Jewish leaders ask him, who's this guy? He's like, I don't know. I don't know who this guy is. All I did was get up and walk. He didn't even acknowledge Jesus' existence when he walked away from him. He couldn't point him out because he didn't know who he was. And I find it amazing that the, the rulers missed the miracle that's standing right in front of them. Right? They missed the miracles that's standing right in front of them, and instead they they, they focus in on the violation of the law. I'm sure God is okay if this man is walking and hasn't been walking for 38 years and he's carrying his mat. God's okay with that. But they're like, no, it's a violation of the law that we've put in place. Right? They didn't recognize the miraculous because they had focused on the violation. And I get it, man. They wanted to keep God's law, they wanted to respect the Lord. But they were missing what God was doing. Right? No one could have healed this man. No one could have done this if it wasn't an act of God. And yet their hearts are hardened because they had built artificial barriers between God and themselves. And this is a trap that many Christians can fall into as well. We like to build our own rules and guidelines and miss what God is actually doing. I heard a pastor a couple weeks ago preaching about something like this, and he was talking about how some people in his congregation were complaining about new members. And these new members would go outside in between service. They were serving in the church, but they would go out in between services outside and they would smoke a cigarette. And they were complaining about these guys going out and smoking. And the pastor said this, he said, you're missing it. If you had just met these guys a couple of months ago, you wouldn't be concerned with them smoking because they were snorting crack, right? let's focus on what God is actually doing with these people and not how they're violating you in some way. Let's focus on what God is actually doing. It's easy for us to miss it when people don't fit into the categories that we think they should fit into. And we can be like these Pharisees, and we can build these 39 categories for X, Y, and Z. And most often, this happens with our own personal convictions, right? We want people to align with our personal convictions, with our own personal rules and regulations. And each of us have convictions that God has given us. Some of us don't drink, right? Some of us don't use tobacco. Some of us don't want tattoos. Some of us don't eat carbs. Whatever it is, right? It doesn't matter what it is. But if we try to put somebody else into that category, and that's not a conviction that God has put on their heart, then we're being like the Pharisees. And that's not okay. Let's not elevate our personal convictions to the status of God's restrictions. Let's rejoice that God saves people and let God work on their heart. And maybe God is working on them. And get this, they might not come to the same conclusions or convictions that you have. But let's not build barriers between us and the people God has called us to minister to. Let's not fall into the trap of legalism. Let's not become the Pharisees. Let's focus on the miracle, not the violation. This does not mean that we don't call out sin. right? If we know that something is a sin, then we will, we will confront it. If it has outright violated God's decree, we... We confront sin biblically. We correct those who are violating God's law, but we give grace to those who have different convictions than we have. We don't need to come up with 39 different categories for what violations somebody has. We don't need to do that. God has already established his law. And if they are true believers, God is working on their heart in a way that he sees fit. We are not called to be the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life. Let's not try to act like them. I'm speaking to myself just as much as I'm speaking to you guys. Let's give God space to work in others. Let's give God space to to shape them into the image that he wants them to be in, not to conform into the image that we want them in. We still teach and we still train and we still talk about what God has said, but we don't add to it and we don't take away from it. And after this man goes and he he passes blame to Jesus, it's Jesus' fault that this happened, this guy. Jesus comes and he finds him in the temple. And what's special about this is that this man, for 38 years, would have not been able to go into the temple. Because if you were disabled in any way, you could not go into the temple. So after 38 years, he finally gets to go worship God in the temple. And presumably he's going there to, to thank God for this healing. And Jesus comes to him. And he tells him that he shouldn't sin anymore. Don't sin anymore, or something worse is going to happen to him. Now Jesus isn't going full mob boss on him, right? Don't violate the laws or something bad's going to happen to you. No, what he's doing is he's he's calling this man to repentance. He's calling this man to place his trust in Jesus, to turn away from the life he he was living and turn towards God. And there are many ways that people translate or or try to explain John fourteen, don't sin any or John 5:14 don't sin anymore or something else is going to happen to you but i think that the most important thing is that jesus is calling them him to repentance and what's worse than being disabled for 38 years being separated from god for eternity that's what's worse there's not much worse than being there in hopelessness and depression for 38 years unable to use, move your legs but that is knowing that you will be out of God's grace forever. That's worse. Jesus once again is showing us that he has conquered our greatest problem. Don't sin anymore. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This guy doesn't get it. After he meets with Jesus, he returns to the Jewish leaders and said, I found him. This guy who healed me, I'll show you who he is. So verse 15, he says this. This man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus responded to them, My Father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying to, trying all the more to kill him. Not, because, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God his own Father and making himself equal to God. Jesus comes on the scene and he, he hears the people talking about him. He knows their hearts and he knows their minds and he says, "Listen, I'm still working." Right? This man goes to these Jewish leaders and he, he he's Jesus is getting um, Jesus is there and he confronts the Pharisees. Notice they didn't talk to Jesus at all, but he knows their hearts and he knows their minds. And he says, "My Father is still working and I am also working." And this enrages the Jewish people. Why? It seems like a pretty simple statement. But here's what we, what they know and that we can miss. Jesus is, in this statement, making himself equal to God. That's why they get mad in verse 18. How? How does this statement make Jesus equal to God? Because the Jews believed that God is always at work. He is always upholding the universe. He is always granting life and death. He never stops, because if he stopped, then the world would cease to exist. And we can say yes and amen to that, right? That God is always working. This means that the only person allowed to work on the Sabbath is God. And Jesus is essentially saying here, just as God works on the Sabbath, so do I. Because I am the same God you claim to worship. That's what Jesus is telling them. That's what John clarifies in verse 18. Jesus was calling, not only was Jesus saying that I am God, but he was calling God his own father, my father. Now in corporate worship, the Jews would would uh, normally refer to God as our Father, but no Jew would call God my Father. It's it's a weird thing, but that's they would they would personalize it in a corporate setting, but not in a personal setting. And just like that, Jesus is bursting onto the scene. He's he's making waves within the Jewish hierarchy. He's breaking barriers and revealing the truth of who he is to those people, to those who are ultimately going to reject him. That he's God. He is the healer. He is worthy of all worship. He is worthy of all praise. So here's the question. Are you going to believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Are you going to believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Or are you going to reject his grace? Are you waiting for a miracle to say that you believe Jesus? Or is Jesus simply enough? Because he has given the greatest miracle. He has given you his life. He has called you to repent and trust in him to turn away from your sin and to trust him. He came and he lived and he died and he rose again so that you could know his grace, so that you could experience his love, so that you could be forgiven and made a child of the living God. So what are you going to do? Are you going to trust him like the father did, the father of the boy, or are you going to pass the buck like the other guy did? Let's pray. Father God, Thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Thank you that you are a healer, Lord. But thank you more that you are our Savior, that you came to save us from sin, to save us from death, so that we could praise and worship you. And you are worthy of all praise and all, worth, all worship because of that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand. We're going to sing us a couple songs. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.